Father, we, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross, whose wounds led to His death, His dying breath, which gave us life. We are so thankful. And we, we look forward to being able to express that thanks throughout eternity. You are an amazing God. We love you. We thank you that you've given us a chance, an opportunity on this earth to come to know you, to know you in such a way that your heart has revealed to us. Lord, we look forward to the day when we're with you in eternity. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. As some of you know, uh, many of you know, uh, Barbara and I and our uh, three girls lived in Jordan for a number of years. And, and one of the rare treats that we enjoyed while we were there was that the temperature, and this isn't the case all over the Middle East, but it is in where we live, that the temperature at night would drop. And we didn't have air conditioning in the house, and the houses were all made out of stone. So what would happen is, is during the day... The stone would collect the heat of the day. And by about 3 o'clock, it was just intolerable and you couldn't stay in the house anymore. And you really couldn't go outside because it was just as intolerable there. But in the evening, when the sun would set, it would cool down and you would be able to go outside. Well, the thing is, is the house was too hot to be in until about midnight I go to bed around 10, didn't work for me very well. So what we did was we put our beds up on the roof. All the roofs are flat up there, and we were the tallest house around. We had about a three-foot wall, so uh, Barb and the girls and I could get around quite, quite easily. And so we would lay up there, and, and no worries about rain. From April to November, there is no rain. just doesn't rain. So you go to sleep. You know, or you look up at the sky and there's the stars and count meteorites. That was one of the things that we love to do. One night we're, we're laying there and all of a sudden there right over our heads flew these flashes of green light. My army days, I knew exactly what it was. They were tracer rounds. And I said, get up, stay low, get downstairs now. Another burst flew right over us. Were we in danger? Yes, we were. In, we were. were we in the middle of a battle? A war? Nope. Someone was getting married. <laughs> sure enough, celebration. We heard about a halfway, uh, about half a mile down the road, they were uh, dancing and singing and so forth, and they'd gotten to the machine gun stage, which, which happens there a lot. Uh, the Jordanian people are, are loud, proud, and highly hospitable. Uh, and when they throw a wedding, they really throw a wedding. And uh, so unlike traditional weddings in, in the West, you know, if the wedding goes an hour, we're okay, an hour and a half, you know, two hours, and pretty soon we're dying, you know, and uh, we want to get out. These things last a week. 
a week. I'm not kidding. They go on and on, and you got to expect the music, the, the debki, which is a particular dance that they do, and unending food. In fact, it's a great shame for them to run out of something to serve you. They're serving you all the time, even if they've run out of everything and they give you a toothpick, you know, and you take it. They're always serving you. Well, back in the day, oh, let me, i got to... A little side tour here just because it's it's true. One of the reasons that we sent our oldest daughter back to the States for a senior year in high school, I wish I could have that year back. But nevertheless, the reason we did it was because I couldn't stop getting people to offer me money and camels to marry her. So I taught English as a second language. And I was uh, one of the people I taught was one of King Hussein's. Uh, lawyers, and he offered me a substantial amount of money and a few camels for Michelle. I was tempted. <laughs> no, I, I really wasn't, but it was too real for me. And so we, we let her go home uh, for her uh, senior year. But one thing's for certain, marriages in the Middle East are big. They are huge. And in John 2, John chapter 2, you don't need to turn there. We know the story very well. We read of a Jewish wedding feast. And the wedding feast was in Cana. And here it is that we see the very first recorded miracle of Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered the first miracle of Christ? I mean, when the Messiah does something for the first time, it's got to mean something, but... Water to wine? I mean, really? At a wedding? Okay. Uh, you, you know, you have to ask, were any of his miracles by accident? Were any of them forced? Were any of them without a specific purpose? I mean, I think if I'm going to do a kickoff miracle and I got the, you know, I got the power, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heal somebody that's lame or somebody that's blind. I'm going to do something big. That's not what Jesus did because... When I'm thinking about that kind of miracle, I'm thinking about the miracle. I'm not thinking about the reason for the miracle. I'm not thinking about the purpose for the miracle. Why didn't Jesus just heal everybody? You need to really examine that when you go through the Scripture and you look at what He did. Everything that He did had a specific design and a specific purpose. He was not looking at the miracle. He was looking at the kingdom. Turned water into wine. Okay. It's baffling a little bit to us. But what Jesus did in the Jewish context was very actually straightforward. The wedding in Cana as all weddings do, illustrate the relationship between God and His people, and in particular, the banquet in the kingdom. However, in, we see in Hosea, uh, as, as he put it so bluntly, the Lord's wife, Israel, had deserted him. It had gone bad. The whole thing had gone bad. The old wine... The law given by Moses had run out, it had soured. The new wine, as John says in John chapter 1, grace and truth by Jesus Christ is better. And the new wine is here. In, in the Middle East, 
even today, as I mentioned, it's a great shame to run out of food. In Jesus' day, it was a great shame to run out of wine. I mean, we don't get this. There are very few things in our society because we don't live in small towns anymore, so we don't understand this very well. But this was a generational shame if you ran out of wine at a wedding. Yeah, we know about the Joneses. Yep. They can't take care of their folks. And that just goes on and on. It was a social faux pas of the first order. In fact, it was so bad that the bride's family could sue the groom's family for running out of wine. (laughs) So we know this story. Why did the host come to Mary? I mean, we know this is a big shame. What that means is you're going to keep all of this on the down low. Why did they come to Mary? Obviously, uh, to be trusted with such a secret, she had to be close family. I mean, that's the way I read it, but we don't know that. Or perhaps Mary had an obvious discretion and resource, so they turned to Mary. And so what did Mary do? Mary went to Jesus and told him they have no wine. Now, they both understood exactly what this meant to the host. Uh, But to understand contextually, you have to understand that the Lord had just gotten back. The Lord had gone out. He had been baptized. He had been pronounced by John as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He had gone into the wilderness. He was tempted by Satan. And he had already gathered five of his disciples. And now he was back in town. Mary knew exactly what was happening. Mary knew. I mean, Mary knew from before he was born who he was. is the Messiah. And so she knows now it's time. He's beginning his messianic ministry. Otherwise, he wouldn't have shown up with his disciples. Why do you collect disciples if you're the Messiah? You get the disciples. You don't do that for no reason. And so she expected him to perform a miracle because according to the Old Testament, if you know anything about the Messiah from the Old Testament, that's what the Messiah does. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Now, you've got to understand that, that, that woman in the New Testament was, was not a, a term of derision or anything like that. It's very respectful. In fact, it's exactly the same word that he uses from the cross when he says, Behold your son. Son, behold your uh, mother. So this, it wasn't disrespectful. He was just saying, My hour hasn't come yet. Now, He was communicating that this was not now the time to display publicly his messiahship. But Mary gets that. So what does Mary what does Mary say? She's a very intelligent woman. So what she says is whatever he says, he said to the servants, whatever he says, do it. In other words, Mary knew. Mary knew that Jesus knew the consequence of running out of wine. And that wasn't going to happen. But he wasn't going to do it publicly. He wasn't going to uh, allow his uh, movement towards being known as the Messiah to be happening at that moment. 
So now, if you have the understanding that the meta narrative of Scripture is about the kingdom of God, the story immediately makes sense. Christ is the Messiah, the new wine. He, and that new wine will ultimately bring in the messianic kingdom on earth. Now, a lot of preachers, and I have too, because there's lots of ways that you can look at this particular text. We could have focused on Christ's creative power. Christ, the creator, because he changed water into wine. Or we could have talked about his compassion and his understanding and his mercy and those things. All true, but that's not the point. The point is found in Isaiah 25, 6, which talks about the wedding banquet. And at the wedding banquet, there's not just going to be wine. There's going to be fine, refined, aged wine. That's the stuff that Jesus made right here. The old wine of the law was done. The new wine of God's grace through Jesus Christ has come. And the guests all marveled what? You have saved the best till last. So now that's just background. And with that background, let's turn to our text, Revelation 19, 6 through 10. In Revelation 19, 6 through 10, we are going to read about the marriage feast of the Lamb. Beginning in 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So again, we will revisit the early part of Revelation 19 around Christmas time. But note that hallelujah occurs here. The word hallelujah occurs four times in the New Testament. And only four. Four times in the New Testament. And all four of those occur in a span of six verses right here in this text. And all of them were and handle agreed. And that's why this is called, this portion is called the Hallelujah Chorus. Now, as Stanley Toussaint, a beloved professor when I was in Dallas, I would say the plot really thickens. First, you have the rejoicing. Remember, we discussed this. You have the rejoicing over the destruction of Babylon, which is immediately followed by the rejoicing over the marriage feast of the Lamb. So we move from praise for judgment 
to celebration for the wedding feast. In verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah! So, Barbara and I, and some of you have probably done this as well, Barbara and I were at Niagara Falls, and we uh, went on the Maid of the Mist up towards the falls, and, and let me just let me just say this. I don't care how loud you are, when you get near the falls, you're reduced to gestures. I mean, because you cannot hear. You absolutely cannot hear. It's like if there was a thunderstorm to come up right now, and in the midst of the thunder, I would just stop. Wait, and then speak. Why? Because you couldn't hear, you couldn't understand. And this, uh, oh, one, one other thing too. Uh, this was a number of years ago. I went to a Promise Keepers rally in Seattle when they still had the kingdom. Now, that place is loud. I mean, really loud. And so they decided to see if they couldn't establish a new sound record. Which is my understanding, at least for that night, they did. And the noise was absolutely deafening. I had to put my fingers in uh, my ears. And let me just say this with our perfect ears in glory, that noise is going to be quiet. And what's going to happen is that day when the marriage feast is announced, it is going to be loud. It is not going to be subdued. And it's going to be so loud that when you think it's at its loudest point, if you go back to verse 4, you find out that God Himself calls out, Praise our God, you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. And it will go from crescendo to crescendo. It's going to be an amazing, amazing event. Then we move to the celebration. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And we know from verse 9 that this is the marriage supper, verse 9 reads. And He said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now just a little uh, historical culture here. Uh, among the ancient Jews, a marriage had four steps. First, there was a contract that was drawn up. In fact, in essence, the essence of marriage, according to Malachi 2.14, is that she is your wife by contract. I mean, that's the clearest definition of marriage that we find in the entire Bible. The epitome of marriage here is a contract where a man and a woman agree to live with one another for the balance of their lives. It's a commitment. It's a vow. Like the one that Barbara and I made, I, John, take thee, Barbara, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. And there, too, we would say today, I, I, I make my pledge, but when Barbara and I gave ours, it was, I, I, I pledge thee my troth. <laughs> Some of you may have pledged troths, I don't know. But anyway, that's definitely the old language. I mean, look at the marriage license. Just pull it out and look at it, and what you're going to find is a contract. Now, I'm not talking about the marriage certificate. That's this nice little curly cue thing you might put on the wall. The license itself is a contract. 
And that was step number one. That occurred about a year before the marriage feast. And then the second part of it, as you move towards the marriage itself, the celebration, that the groom would go to the bride's house and take the bride to his father's house. They generally, you know, when they added on, they just added on another spot. And so that the family lived right right there. And they had made a spot ready for the son. When that portion was ready, the son would go and then they would have a little ceremony. And, and that in the Bible is where the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25 comes up. Because that ceremony is followed by a wedding procession from that bride's house to the groom's house. Now you'll recall in that story with the, the, uh, the, the ten virgins, the bride and the groom tarried. Uh, and so what happened was, or the, the groom tarried, and they had to wait. And some of them, their oil in their lamps burned out. And some, they, 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 had their, they had their oil, but it is now that we tarry. I mean, we're, we got the lamps, folks. Uh, the Lord is tarrying. And in the meantime, we need to wait and we need to do something else. We need to watch. We need to be expectant that the Lord is going to come back. And then they have that third element where there's a parade route. I mean, it's a big deal. Everybody, and we've, we've, we've actually seen these kinds of things with our own eyes uh, when we were in uh, the Middle East. Uh, and make it as long as they could, as loud as they could, rejoicing the entire time, going from the bride. Uh, bride's house to the groom's house. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing is that there was the marriage supper. Okay, now to some elements in the text. We've got some serious questions to ask. So there are three entities here. The groom, the, the, the lamb, that is Jesus Christ, the bride, and the invited guests. And is everything else, the book of Revelation, commentators are all over the place. They're all over the map, except for in one thing. Everyone agrees, everyone agrees that the Lamb is Jesus Christ. So we've got the groom. The groom is set. But the bride, who's the bride? Now, so I'm going to give a conclusion and then kind of a rebuttal and then a conclusion. So, so I hope you don't get... Don't get lost. I'll, I'll try to be clear. Second Corinthians 11:2, we read, I have espoused you to one man as a virgin. The implication is that that's the bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, the church is not called the bride. In fact, nowhere in Scripture is the church called the bride. Although it is impossible to escape the conclusion that the church is the bride. And uh, in fact, it's uh, the argument is that, that Israel is called the wife. We know that from Hosea and all through the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the uh, bride. We still don't know, and I'm going to come back to it. Thirdly, there are guests. Have you ever thought about that? There are guests at the feast. Where's the feast occurring? It's in heaven. So these guests are got to be saved folk. All right. 
So the argument here is that you have Christ, the church, and the bride, and then you have redeemed Israel and other redeemed people um, as, as the guests. Now, when I lived up in Alaska, I took a course in Greek at Alaska Bible College. It was an extension campus, and the instructor was a local church pastor. Denomination remained unnamed. And we got on the subject of the bride of Christ. I was talking about the unity of the church and the believers. Uh, as believers, we were all part of the bride of Christ. And he said, no. He said, we're the bride of Christ. And I said, I said what? What am I, chop liver? And he said, no, no, no. You're one of the guests. <laughs> You're one of the friends of the groom. Now, I hope he still doesn't believe that, but, you know, I haven't kept up with him. Uh, but who are the guests? So I'm going to, let me go back to the other thing. Let me muddy the waters uh, just a little bit more. And now you have to understand that, that uh, while I disagree, it would be unfair for me not to present this to you as a, just a matter of uh, scriptural integrity. Uh, Dr. Toussaint, whom I mentioned before, will mention again, one of my favorite professors, I deeply respect, but he argues that the bride is the saved of all ages. And he has a sound passage to turn to. So just flip over to Revelation 21.9. Should be just a page or so. 21.9. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here and I will show you the bride. Very specifically, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So now just go down to verse 12, and you'll find that what he's talking about is the new Jerusalem. And in the new Jerusalem, in verse 12, it says this, It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the twelve gates twelve angels and names were written on them, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Now drop further down to 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. So the bride's called the New Jerusalem, the city of God, and we find that it's composed of the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes, or what the 12 apostles represent, that is, the church. So this is the bride of Christ. And while I can't and won't at this point, I will later, take the time to counter that argument, I'll just simply present uh, my view. And that is, the Old Testament Israel is pictured as the wife of Yahweh. Okay? He is, the Israel is always pictured in that way. If you haven't ever taken the time to read Hosea, it's somewhat of a disturbing uh, book as it relates to God's relationship with Israel, but it is, it is, it's, it's impossible to understand the relationship without reading the book of Hosea because what you see is that Israel is an unfaithful wife destined to be restored in the new kingdom. Now, the New Testament never uses that as a picture of the church, ever. The New Testament uses marriage 
In fact, it uses essentially the uh, time before marriage to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. But that relationship is deeply contrasted with the Old Testament because Israel is anything but a chaste wife. And the church is always seen in one context only, holy, blameless, virgin bride, clothed in righteousness, waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. I mean, one of the false interpretations that's plagued the church since about 300 A.D. is a concept that God uh, treats all saints exactly the same, with no distinction. Now, while that may be true for his love for us, his care for us, his mercy, his compassion on all of those things that cannot be increased. They cannot be different because they all are at 100%. Nevertheless, if you look at the Bible, you just look at the Bible, you'll find that there are distinctions all over the place. I mean, the bride is in heaven and the guests are in heaven also. Obviously, they're all saved. They wouldn't be there. The bride is a fixed company. It has to be because you still don't have all the tribulation saints. You don't have any of the millennial saints. And there's absolutely nothing said about what happened before Abraham. Or for that matter, what happened before the flood. Where are they? Where's Methuselah? Uh, For that matter, Adam and Eve. You understand that these are all in the company of the beloved in the right relationship with God, but they're not all part of the bride. Otherwise, at the marriage feast, it would be incomplete. I don't believe that you can add to it. I mean, the Bible even distinguishes, and this is hard for us, but the Bible even distinguishes between believers. Some of us are going to have only a little bit in glory. And some are going to have a lot. He distinct, there are distinguishing, get rid of this postmodern notion that there are no distinctions. There are. Hierarchy is not the most evil thing in the world or the universe. You have these differences that we see. I mean, our human minds, we tend to complain. Oh, that's not fair. I'll tell you what. When we do that, and I don't mean this to be critical, but I know that some may may take it this way, but that illustrates little understanding when we have such thoughts. Because I'll tell you what, if there was anything that was ever unfair, it was Jesus Christ hanging on a cross for our sins. Not for his. He was sinless. He was absolutely perfect. We were the sinners. And he died for us. The fact that we have anything at all speaks to the grace and the mercy and the glory of God. Not that we don't have something different from some other believer in glory, but that we're in glory. Even just walking in this morning, someone opened the door and they said to me, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than whatever this world may afford. 
I mean, that is an amazing thing. God has a program for the faithful dead before Abraham. He has a program for Israel as a nation. He has a program for the Gentiles in the Old Testament who have faith in God and in the New Testament. He has a program for the church. The tribulation saints are, uh, not only are they distinguished, they, they actually go and collect in a particular place. It's not a question of the difference in blessings. It is a question of the difference in God's plan and how he's going to administer his kingdom through eternity. Our destiny, biblically speaking, is to be the bride of Christ. There is no greater reward. I know that sounds, what would it sound? Churchocentric? <laughs> but it's true. And it's true because there's no greater use that we can make of our time on earth than to prepare for the day of His coming. Let me go to why it's true. If you were still in chapter 22 or not, go to 22.17. And you're going to hear something. And the Spirit... And the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of the life freely. The, she is there beside Christ, drying tears, erasing sorrows, and making all things broken, new, and fresh, and clean once more. Father, we do not understand all of your plans. We only have glimpses. But we do know this. There is something about Trusting Jesus Christ as Savior and being filled with your spirit that is different. That creates something new. Something specifically and preciously designed for you. And we stand in amazement of that. And so, Lord, however your plan plays out. Our earnest desire is simply to be a part of it, involved in it. And Lord, that is only because your son, Jesus Christ, gave his life for us. He died that we might live. His righteousness applied to us that when God sees us now and at the judgment or any time he sees the righteousness of Christ. He does not see our frailty, even though he knows it. He sees us as who we really are, joined with Christ for all eternity. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.